Listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, very glad that you've joined us. R&B singer R. Kelly was a phenomenon in the 1990s and early 2000s. A guy with a smooth voice and a real sensibility for the kind of songs people not only liked but also wanted to get up and dance to. He could sing about love and sex in a way that seemed cool and real, more authentic than many of his contemporaries. But Behind the scenes, there was a sinister and harrowing story that began to emerge. First came the story that Kelly had married fellow singer Aaliyah, his protege, when she was just 15. Then came bigger stories about him luring other underage women into sexual relationships. And there was the famous videotape reportedly made by Kelly himself of a sex act with a young girl. More recently, Kelly has been accused of keeping a cadre of young women captive in his home and keeping them from their friends and family. It's the kind of story that seems surreal even by today's standards. But a new docuseries airing on Lifetime brings it all into the shocking focus of reality. Surviving R. Kelly tells this story from the vantage point of the singer's accusers and some of the people who know him best. It is difficult and sometimes wrenching television. But it is also very hard to turn away from. And it's impossible to watch and not wonder a few things. Should R. Kelly be facing more charges than he already has for sexual misconduct? And if so, why haven't prosecutors acted? Just as big, what explains the popularity R. Kelly has been able to maintain? How come fans universally have not turned against this singer? Dreamhampton is a native Detroiter, a longtime cultural critic, and the executive producer of Surviving R. Kelly. She joins us now to talk about the series. Dream, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Stephen. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be home. So it was pretty amazing to me last night watching uh, Surviving R. Kelly and uh, alternating between the television screen in my home and the phone uh, that was in my hand, I, I was, you know, at once taking in the, the, this amazing work that, that that you produced, but then also really closely uh, caught up into the social media buzz about yeah. it. I mean, it seemed that everyone was talking about this uh, last night. Everyone had uh, some reaction to it, some emotional reaction to it. Let's start. Can I tell you, though, sure. I told the executives when we were making this, I was like, that, you know, who's our audience? Black Twitter, you know? <laughs> right. And I mean that very seriously. It's an actual space. It's a town hall. Sure. Um, and they can make a show like Scandal or they or they can demand like movement change. I mean, forget Black Lives Matter. How about um, Hollywood So White? You know what I mean? So the, the, I, I was also tracking the surviving R. Kelly hashtag. The hashtag was yeah. was uh, was blown up, and and on Facebook, everybody in my feed okay. seemed yeah, to be watching and talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I think that's interesting that that you had that in mind, I guess, as Absolutely. you were pitching this. Yeah, no, I, early on, I was a, a user of the space, less so now, but I know how important <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah. So so, what drew you to trying to tell this story? I mean, I was repulsed by the story, so I can't say I was drawn into it. I didn't pitch this, first of all. I've seen people on Twitter ask me why it's not at another network or, you know, I didn't pitch this. I was invited on um, 
Buna Murray, actually my agent called and was like, we want you to take a meeting with Buna Murray, who produced reality TV, most famously the Kardashians, I guess, which I've never seen. But back in the day, they did the real world, which I remember. They invented reality TV. And and they want to talk to you about an R. Kelly lifetime drama. And I remember how awful the Aaliyah like, fiction movie was. I was like, they're going to try to do one of those stupid reenactment movies. I was like, I don't want to talk to these people. I like was... 10 minutes late to the Skype call eating sushi. <laughs> and when they told me that, they actually had a more serious approach to this and they wanted to do a docuseries and that's why they were reaching out to me. They had seen some of my other work. I've done two independent documentary films mm-hmm. and, and and produced a lot of shorter doc pieces. Um, then I started listening. I remember taking off my sunglasses like, oh wait, this is something different. Like, I was so dismissive. Um, but in, you know, to be real about it, I profiled R. Kelly in 2000. And um, it was for the November issue of Vibe, which would have meant that I would have been writing it around August. This was back when there were magazines and there was like lead time. (laughs) Um, The business was a little different. It was way different. (laughs) And and I, so I I probably would have gone out to Chicago and I was supposed to be there three days. It ended up being a week because he kept putting off the interview, which was great. I got to process, I mean, witness his um, process. But I missed the story because two months later, Two months after my story came out, Jim Derogatis, who's been this relentless reporter, he's also, yeah, Yeah. a music journalist turned, like, investigative reporter when it comes to R. Kelly. He's he's the real hero of the story, and I'm sorry he can't be in the doc. He had another deal. But um, he broke the story about the, you know, about... Tiffany Hawkins about these the different teenagers. So what we thought back then was that he had married um, a 15 year old, 12 years younger than him, and that that was disgusting, and that they had quickly had it annulled, right? And to be honest, and and this is I've been doing a lot of reflecting on this, like because Jamila Lemieux asked why wasn't it a full stop then, and and I had to. I was like, why wasn't it a full stop? And we don't have to just talk about the music industry and Jimmy Page having like a 16 or 15-year-old live-in when he was in his 60s or 70s or Elvis marrying a 14-year-old. We can talk about our own families. Like, did your grandmother marry your grandfather when she was 16 or 17 and he was 30? Or my father, you know, married my stepmother when she was 18 and he was 37. Mm. So... I'm not saying that we excuse it at them. We were all completely like, what the heck? Um, But what became clear once Jim started doing his reporting was this was actually a pattern, that he was a predator. And I missed that. And I went back to think like, wow, what did I not see in the studio when I was there? Because I wrote a profile that included details about what was in his fridge. Wow. Like I failed. And so I was drawn to this as a way as a redemptive moment personally, but also as a reckoning, like this had gone, I see a lot of people on Twitter trying to act like the Me Too movement has unfairly targeted black men because we've had Roger, I mean, Bill Cosby go down, but the real people who've been befallen by the Me Too movement and by women finally kind of speaking out are, have been white men. It's been, you know, Bill O'Reilly, Roger Ailes, Harvey Weinstein, you know, and from what I know about R. Kelly, from what's not in this doc, actually, he's to the left of all those men mm-hmm. in terms of his sadism, in terms of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so watching the docuseries last night, uh, I, I was, of course, struck most by these stories, mm-hmm. the stories that these women tell 
uh, about their relationships with uh, with with R. Kelly. Um, and I'm always I'm always moved when we see something like that to 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 ask how difficult it was to get people to tell that story, to tell that story in the detail that they did with the emotion that is so obvious, you know, on their faces and in their expressions. Um, I, I mean, I, wrenching is the word that I just keep coming back to it's when I think word. about the work. Yeah, it's a good word. And that's how I felt doing it. Um, I remember like crying during interviews, which is something that one never does. I mean, you know, I'm sure you have had to, been on the receiving end of some incredibly traumatic stories here in Detroit and other places. And yeah, no, you don't freaking cry. And I remember sitting with the parents and crying. Lisa Van Allen, who was on yesterday, who met R. Kelly when she was 16 and, and he began, you know, statutory raping her. Um, I remember taking bathroom breaks and just heaving, like crying, ugly crying. Um, and so there has been, I, I, I don't know how to do interviews, right? I mean, I've <laughs> been on your side of it. Yeah, but we're just sitting here talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I have been doing interviews and things that have been, I should have been more mindful. Like I talked about how I couldn't get any celebrities to be in this. And that's become this huge headline. But your question is better. Like it was really about, even if we had had celebrities, you see how we use John Legend in the two hours mm-hmm. um, from last night. He may have appeared three or four times and not a total of four minutes. Right. But said something very powerful when he was there. Right? He's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but so if we had more celebrities, it's not like we would have used them. They wouldn't it wouldn't have become the celebrities on our Kelly doc. That was not the point. The point was to center these people who were close to him and to center the women who had survived being abused by him. And yeah, it wasn't, they weren't all, some of them had told their stories to people like Jim Derogatis, um, in places like BuzzFeed and um, wherever Jim could get them published, quite frankly. But obviously we all know that it's different. You know, I'm on radio right now. I didn't have to get my mascara done and I didn't have to do the things, right? Like it's different facing a camera. It just is. Um, and I knew that this would be different in that way too. So that the people who might have read about these women's stories about over the past year, because again, I keep saying Jim's name because he's a total hero to me, um, had read Jim's reporting on what's been happening recently to see it and to hear them. is just a different thing. It was, it engages different senses. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, that I think also emerges from this work is the question of how this happens yeah. how this happens not just in the first instance but i mean it's very clear uh, f- from the series that this is something that has gone on for a really really long time and that suggests all kinds of uh, failures i i guess on on the parts of a lot of different people in terms of intervening to stop it and i think this is a question that we should all be asking ourselves you know i i i probably way too nakedly talked about my dad's, you know, marriage, second marriage. But I had a friend who I grew up with, who I went to Bates Academy, who um, started sleeping with his wife when she was 15. He married her probably at 18 or 17. But then later when they divorced, I would hear about him. I'd long cut him off because he's problematic in all the ways that most of these men are. And I hear about him up at at Martin Luther King picking up girls. My prom, when I graduated from Cass Tech in 1988, there were 25-year-old men there. 
as dates. As dates. I remember this one girl, she was from the east side. Sometimes we would carpool together. She was, you know, what we would call grown back then. Like, this is the 80s. So she had all the fly, you know, the Gucci (laughs) boots with the Gucci bag, with the Gucci glasses. And and that came from dating other older men. And we knew that it was an open secret. They would come pick her up from school in their expensive cars. And so we don't have to look at R. Kelly. And even, and I think what becomes clear when you do watch the docuseries, and we'll get to the record labels in the other episodes, but we wanted to lay this foundation of listen to his brothers. And that is one of the things that, that yeah. is also really hard to watch in this series is yeah. the other men yeah. who it's uh, who excuse what he was doing and rationalize it. And, and in some cases, I felt like talked about having the same kind of impulses themselves. Well, one of the things that I think we've learned, and I think that Women have to learn this. We we have to watch people learn this in waves. So I wasn't around for the 70s feminist movement, but I became a feminist. I used to call myself a womanist in the early 90s <laughs> after all that great black women's literature of the 80s. But what we learn is that we don't have a working definition of consent. You know, and I can say we as in black folks or community, but it's not true. It's like people like America, the who knows the world. I mean, when you hear Harvey Weinstein's stories, I think that he thought he was attractive in some way. I don't know what the heck. But we don't have some working definition of consent. We see this come up in the Brett Kavanaugh trial. We see this come up in all kinds of places in society. So we really don't have the language. Again, we're not that far removed from it being completely acceptable to have sex with children. There are very few countries in the world where it's illegal to have sex with children. Um, We as... Yeah, I could go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I want to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to continue on that that question of where this comes from and how deeply imbued it is in in all of our culture here uh, in in uh, America. Uh, stay with us on Detroit Today. We'll be right back with more with Dream Hampton. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. My guest is Dream Hampton, a cultural critic and executive producer of Surviving R. Kelly, a docu-series that is running on Lifetime. Uh, it is about the women who accuse R. Kelly of abusing them. It gives them a chance to tell their side of the story. Also, we hear from lots of people who are very close to singer R. Kelly in the in the series. If you want to uh, join the conversation, feel free to give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, are you watching Surviving R. Kelly? Are you somebody who is or was a fan of R. Kelly? Uh, and tell us how you process all of this information, these stories about the behavior that uh, these women say he has engaged in. Uh, Dream, I want to talk a little more about the cultural context for all of this. Uh, As you say, it's easy to look at celebrities and say, well, they're doing that. But Mm -hmm. uh, as you're pointing out a little earlier, 
This is something that I think a lot of people can look around them uh, in the world and see more of and more acceptance of. And that maybe is part of the answer to the question about how this happens and how it continues to happen for somebody as famous as R. Kelly. Well, you know, we're in a profoundly anti-intellectual moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> the leadership, uh, we've learned that our literacy rates are in the toilet. You know, more than 50% of Americans apparently read below an eighth grade level. So I, I'm going to say this, and I don't mean to be talking over folks' head, and, and there are people much smarter than me, but feminist scholarship is important because it does give us this context. When we were talking earlier about this girl that I was remembering who was like a grade older than me who dated these older boys or even our grandparents, why are they encouraged in a construct of heteropatriarchy to like marry older? Why isn't a girl in Afghan um, who's 13 married off to an older man, right? It's because of capitalism. It's because one of the tenets of patriarchy is provision. You know, the other one is protection, which is black folks we can barely, you know, manage in terms of state terror. But this idea that, and this is why in my other life as an activist, I do things like I work with Moms Rising and I I think of like organizations like Mothering Justice who are doing things like to close the pay gap, to fight for sick days for mothers. All of these things, economic kind of policies that we have in place and that we have to fight for generation after generation leave women in these incredibly vulnerable places where they do things like, you know, give up certain amount of their freedom or accept, we as a society, accept that they are to be taken care of by men. And if we did things like close the pay gap, if we did, the, and, and I mean this on a racial level, obviously on a gender level, then if we took went back to some of these basic feminist principles, which, by the way, aren't all sewn up, it's not like we've handled this stuff, um, then we could begin to talk about this in real context. None of that is interesting to folks. It's more interesting <laughs> to talk about, you know, the kind of salaciousness of the these stories. Of right, it, sure. and I get that. And and But for me, all of these things are in the back of my mind when I'm thinking about someone like R. Kelly and producing this kind of television, you know? Uh, what about consequences for him? I mean, he he went through a criminal trial, uh, and that seemed to be the end of that inquiry. There's a lot of stuff that I saw in this docuseries that seems to me should be of at least some interest to prosecutors. Yeah, in episodes... Um five and six, we're going to be introduced to parents. Um, you're going to be disavowed of this notion, this patriarchal notion that if they had fathers, where were their fathers? Aaliyah had a father who was in her life. Um, and there, the the girl, two girls who are with him now to this day um, have fathers who are married to their mothers and are younger than R. Kelly. At this point, R. Kelly is... Um, abusing girls and young women post teenagers basically who whose parents are a good five to ten years younger than him right um and one of them asriel clary's parents um she's the girl who's singing the national anthem for a brief moment on video in the opening segment of um, episode one she um he started sleeping with her when she was uh seven 16 or 17 year old in florida in Orlando, and they have state laws. And so her father has been appealing to the FBI, to the local police. The local police 
in his county, actually, tried to mount a child pornography case about R. Kelly back when he had the case that ran in Chicago. Something about the execution of a warrant, I learned by doing this article, I mean, doing this um, doc, you know, prevented him. In terms of his actual trial, that's tonight. Um, episodes three and four are all about the trial and this a ta- this tape that went viral before we had social media, the one that you referred to earlier. And I'm so glad that you didn't just simply call it a sex tape. It's a tape of him abusing um, what appeared to be a t- preteen and what, in fact, was a 14-year-old. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he delayed that trial. That's that I want to finish that thought. He had the resources and his, the strategy um, and his legal team to let that trial go on for years. So he kept that girl close to him during that time. And so she thought she was in love. I mean, and I'm sure there are a lot of women who are 30 who are like, I can't believe I dated this, you know, 25 or 27 or 35 year old man when I was a senior in high school and thought I was in a relationship. Right. So she I don't know where she is now. I, I had made a bargain with Sparkle to interview her and not go after, you know, not try to pursue this interview with her family member. Um, and I respected that. But what happened during the trial was that he dragged it on for so long that if she were to appear, if she were to say, decide that she wanted to testify against him, she would have appeared so much older. Right. And she would have been to... almost 20 years old right. by the time that they finally got the trial going. But she never did appear. And yeah. any prosecutor will tell you. The prosecutors, in fact, on tonight's episodes will talk about how impossible it was, even with family members coming forward um, and identifying her. Not all family members did identify her. It's traumatic. By the way, Sparkle was a huge, as we say in this business, get. You know, like I had to negotiate. She has a really protective manager, Dwayne Wayne, who is just amazing and really smart and put me through it. I mean, I'm talking hours of being on the phone with him Mm -hmm. around my intentions, right? Because she has not spoken since the trial. She lost everything. She was someone who was going, she was on that same path as Mary J. Blige or Faith Evans. She had a beautiful voice and the looks of Diana Ross still does. And she had R. Kelly like producing hits for her. And you you watch her video, be careful. That was a video <laughs> that mm-hmm. probably cost two or three hundred thousand dollars back when the music wow. industry there was a music industry and they paid money for videos. <laughs> right? right. So anyway, so I'm saying there was a lot invested in her career by coming forward and testifying against R. She Kelly, that all, all that disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. And she didn't talk to her family for ten years. Wow. Uh, we've got a just a couple minutes left, yeah, but, but I, I want to talk about the fandom mm. that still surrounds R. Kelly and and both on Twitter and on Facebook uh, last night as it was airing. You know, I was seeing this this that argument yeah. uh, surface over and over again. People saying, "Look, I still like the music, and there's nothing wrong with that." Other mm-hmm. people saying, "If you like the music, if you buy the music, if you dance to the music, you are playing into." the abuse yeah what do you think about all of that i think that this question of art versus artist is an age-old question it's one that we'll be you know struggling with with different artists and um i think that the thing the difference with r kelly say to miles davis well miles davis's autobiography came out with quincy troop he had this horrific uh piece in there about um having abused cicely tyson and he was laughing about the fact that she was hiding in the basement after he beat her hiding from company, right? And Pearl Clegg, who's the daughter, of course, of um, Albert Clegg here in Detroit, wonderful playwright, wrote a book called Mad at Miles. And she was calling, you know, like I said, a new feminist in the early 90s. And she was like, 
stop listening to Miles Davis, you know? And I tried to boycott Miles Davis, and then I fell in love. It's pretty hard, And right? then I started listening to Kind of Blue again. Um, and I'm not trying to rationalize this, but I, I can tell you that when I listen to Miles Davis, I'm not hearing songs about abusing women. When I listen to R. Kelly and songs like that he's produced, like AJ Nothing But a Number, songs like Your Body's Calling, I'm not saying that he hasn't made some songs that transcend you know, what his predatory behavior is, but he has also laid song, made songs that lay out exactly who he is. So for me, it's not a problem, and it's easy to turn away from R. Kelly. I've never bought into this idea that he's a musical genius. I think that um, he's an amazing songwriter and has made incredible songs, but I'm fine not listening to Step in the Name of Love at the family reunion. We still got Frankie Beverly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean that, but but <laughs> but his again, fans are crazy. It's Very really mean, hard yeah. to it's really yeah. hard to make that point. I mean, you go to a wedding, you go to a family reunion. Yeah. Uh, the, the, so often, those are the songs that people are playing. And uh, well, let me let folks off the hook. Nelson George does it in the movie. He says that, and it's a really good point that when we listen to these songs, we're not thinking about the artists. We're thinking about what they have, what where they appear in our lives. So if you're listening to Step in the Name of Love, you're thinking about, you know, the, the family reunion on Belle Isle right. or whatever, when your yeah. grandmother was still alive or when you, he, I believe I can fly with you about your eighth grade graduation. So our memories and music, unlike most other forms, are associated with our own personal stories. Okay. Dream Hampton. Thank you. Executive producer of Surviving R. Kelly. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you. On Monday, we're going to speak with two new leaders in Lansing, Democratic Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist II and Republican State House Speaker Lee Chatfield. Be sure to join us then. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs>